Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. It's good to see you. Happy New Year. Everybody in a good mood? Good, good, good. I want to welcome everybody watching online. I know we have a ton of people joining us this weekend. Uh, January is always the biggest attendance month in the church. And so I just want to say hello to all of you. I'm going to say hello as many times as I can because some of you I won't get to see starting in February. So just kidding. Just kidding. You know what they say about the phrase just kidding. 99% of the time when someone says just kidding, they don't mean that. Uh, This weekend, we are starting a new series that I'm really, really excited about. And I know it's going to throw some of you big time um, because I... I, this is not, I've never preached a message as the first message of a new year like this one. Uh, I said after the first service, I think we might be able to hand out a little bit of college credit for this. Not because of the depth, we're just covering a lot of ground. Um, and I'm trying to keep this message under two and a half hours. Um, and you'll see why, because we're, we're, we just have to cover so much. But we're starting a new series this weekend entitled The Real Jesus. The Real Jesus. And in this series, we're going to be talking about multiple things, but uh, the essence of this series is we're going to talk about the Jewishness of Jesus. And uh, I know for some of you that that kind of throws you a little bit, and that's okay. Uh, stick with me. We're going we're gonna to learn together. Uh, we're going to walk this, this road together. We're also going to be talking about God's heart for Israel, which is very scripturally important. And I don't just mean the political nation of Israel. I mean the Jewish people. We're also going to be talking, though, about our Jewish roots, the Jewish roots of our faith. And I, I know that, that not everyone, we all come to this discussion from different arenas and vantage points. Some of us grew up in churches uh, that taught the church has replaced Israel. Uh, some of us grew up in churches where Israel isn't even talked about. Uh, and... So I, I'm, I'm aware, I try and be very aware, but I, I want to just remind you of this, and I try and say this every time I talk about God's heart for Israel or baptism in the Holy Spirit, because I'll have people say, man, Preston, I love you so much, I love the church, I love how you preach, da 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 and then I preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I'm like, what, what? I'm like, listen, hold on, I didn't just start believing this last week. So whether you realize it or not, when you say, oh man, Preston, I love you, I love the way you teach, I love what, what you talk about, da 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 you don't even realize what you're saying. You actually love that because that's a really big part of who I am, okay? So it's really my way of tricking you. In the same way, you may have grown up in the faith not hearing about God's heart for Israel. I need you to understand something. I didn't just start believing this last week, okay? I didn't take a few weeks off in December and go, I'm going through ministerial midlife crisis. I'm gonna believe some new things. This has been a part of my family since before I was born. A part of my legacy, the, the, the way the story is told to me is my great-grandmother gave Moish Rosen, who founded Jews for Jesus, his first New Testament. I, a love for Israel has been in my family since long before my birth. And what I want you to see is that's because it comes from God's word, okay? But if you got a Bible, turn to Romans 9. I'm, I'm not gonna ask you to, to just turn to two places uh, for those of you who can keep up, I want you to turn to a lot of scriptures and see it in your own Bible. Uh, and h- here's what I want to remind you of as we jump into this, because we're going to 
answer a couple of questions. I kind of need to lay a foundation theologically so that you understand uh, the importance of where we're going to be going during this series. Uh, but, but let me say this. Years ago, I felt like uh, the Lord gave me a ministerial philosophy as it relates to communication on the stage. Uh, since I can remember, I've heard pastors go back and forth. Are you a preacher or are you a teacher? As though you're one and the other. Here's what I felt like the Lord taught me. You preach when they know. You teach when they don't. You preach when they know. You teach when they don't. Now, most people in the, the church, or many, I won't say most, many people in the church don't have a scriptural understanding of God's heart for Israel or the, the Jewishness of Jesus. And, and let me just remind you, Jesus came to this earth, was born a Jew, lived as a Jew, died as a Jew, and will come again one day as the Jewish Messiah. Okay, now for some of you, you're like, whoa, that's a lot of Jewishness. Okay, that's because that's who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. We're going to talk about this in the message. But, but here's what I would say. Some of your minds are racing. And, and I'm going to do my best to answer some of these questions. And admittedly, it's not going to be easy in the time that we have. Point number one took over 20 minutes in the first. So uh, just buckle up, okay? Uh, here's question number one. As we talk about God's heart for Israel and the Jewishness of Jesus and our, the Jewish roots of our faith, here's the number one question I get anytime I talk about these this subject matter. Point number one, the number one question, is our church going to become Jewish? It's the number one question I get. And I kind of start just with a little bit of humor because here's the answer to that question. No, because that's not possible. Okay. So let me help you understand the difference between someone who's Jewish and someone who's not. Uh, there's a, a term for people who are, for anyone who's not Jewish. Does anybody know the term? Gentile, that's right. Okay, so who is a Jew? What makes a Jewish person a Jewish person? Romans chapter nine, verse five. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. So they are the descendants of Abraham, biologically, okay? Now, I know some, even if it's a small percentage, might be thinking, well, Preston, the church I grew up in, I was taught, that I am a true Jew. Because I've read through Romans and, and Paul talks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about a true Jew being one whose heart is right with God. And I am a true Jew. Okay, I need to help you understand um, if, if you're a Gentile, why that's not true and the importance of understanding why it's not true. But let me read it first. Romans chapter two, verse 28. If you're in Romans nine, just flip to Romans two. I want you to try as best you can for those of you who are nerds like me, to keep up by turning. I want to hear those Bibles turning or the fingers scrolling on your Bible app, whatever it is. Keep up with me. Romans 2, verse 28. For you are not a true Jew, clearly speaking to Jews, you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. Okay, now, I have heard it taught in the church from time to time that the word one actually means any person as though the beginning of verse 29 was no a person or people 
No, a true Jew is what it says, is one whose heart is right with God. One attaches to the subject of the sentence, Jew, true Jew. Okay, here's the verse that gets taken out of context. Galatians chapter three, verse seven, that is attached to Galatians chapter two that some in the church use Gentiles to say, I'm a true Jew because I believe in Jesus. Galatians three, verse seven, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. Okay, I've heard this taught. Anyone who puts their faith in God is a true Jew. They are a child of Abraham. Here's what that means. That's talking spiritually, not biologically. Okay, if you're taking notes, write this, this one-liner down. Try to make it as simple as I could. Gentiles are family by faith, not by birth. When a non-Jewish person believes in Jesus as the Messiah, they are grafted in, Romans chapter 11 says. Okay, they are grafted into the family of God. Now, that's not biological. That's spiritual. Okay, now... There are two big questions when we talk about this that the church really has to understand so that we walk in truth, not in opinion, okay? The first question as we talk about, you know, is our church going to become Jewish? What they're really saying is, does a Christian have to become Jewish to be saved? If, if our roots, the roots of our faith are Jewish, if when I believe in Jesus, do I have to become Jewish to be saved? Well. Here's what I love about God's word. It answers everything in life. And go back to the first century church as it was exploding. Remember, the birth of the first century church was among the Jews, Jesus being Jewish. The bulk of those who first believed in Jesus were Jewish. And then Gentiles began to believe in Jesus. And it caused, in the beginning, a very heated discussion about what we're talking about. Do Christians have to become Jews to be saved? And then the next question we're gonna answer is, do Jews have to become Christians to be saved? Okay, so let me read you Acts chapter 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. So the apostles and elders get together to answer these questions, all right? Because there was some fighting going on. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse five. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So here's what they're saying. These Gentiles who are being converted, believers in Jesus, need to behave like Jews. They need to be circumcised and they need to follow Mosaic law. Okay, that's what they're saying. Verse six, so the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. Skip down to verse 19. Now James, believed the brother of Jesus, one of the apostles, James is speaking. He says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Well, that's really sweet of them. If you really think about what he's saying. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming food. Now, understand, the apostles and elders were not saying these are things that must be done in order to be saved. What they're actually talking about is, is to try and keep unity between the Jews and the Gentiles who were believers in Jesus. Let, let's agree on these things because these things have been taught at, at a very deep level. Let, let's agree on these things so that there's not offense between the Jews towards the Gentiles. Now, here's, here's uh, the point. 
When you go back to the first century church, the majority of believers in Jesus were Jewish. So they're the majority. They're looking at the minority saying, hey, there are some pointing at you guys saying, if you actually want to be a believer in Jesus, you need to become Jewish like us. And we don't, it actually goes even further. Uh, we don't want to put that burden on you. Okay? So here's, here's what we need to be able to agree upon. Not for the sake of salvation, but for the sake of unity. As one new man, the body of Yeshua. Let's agree on these things so that the, the Jews are not offended by these behaviors. Okay? So they answer the question. Christians do not need to become Jews in order to be saved. So when someone asks, Preston, when you talk about God's heart for Israel and the Jewish roots of our faith, are we about to become Jewish? No. No, that's not possible. Okay? But you're going to under, understand at the end of this message the romantic why of why this really should matter to the church and why it should matter to you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But let's talk about the other side of this coin. Do, do Jews have to be Christian to be saved? If you're taking notes, write this one-liner down. Jews who believe in Jesus are family by birth and by faith. Jews who believe in Jesus are family by birth and by faith. Now, when you read through uh, Acts chapter 11, you see that uh, there's a growing number of Gentiles. Uh, Acts 10, Peter, Cornelius, we, we see this going on. And now there, there's a, a, an equal, uh, equally important discussion from the Jewish people going, hey, wait a minute. There are more and more Gentiles being saved. And I'm just kind of doing the math here, but if there are eventually more of them than us, are we going to have to start being like them? In order to be saved? So let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Paul is speaking to both groups, both parties, Jew and Gentile. He says, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is to Jew and Gentile. This is my rule for all the churches, Paul says. For instance, a man who was circumcised, speaking of a Jewish man, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer in Jesus should not try and reverse it. Okay, I personally think Paul is using a little bit of humor to shed light on this semi-silly conversation. Should or do Jews have to become Christians to be saved? Do Christians have to become Jews to be saved? This is what, what Paul literally says, and I think he's trying to be a little funny. He's like, let me, let me illustrate this for you. This would be like a Jewish man becoming a believer in Yeshua, Jesus as the Messiah, trying to reverse his circumcision. Okay, I don't want, want to go TMI. If you don't understand what circumcision is, don't Google it because it will probably lead to a bunch of different things. Just ask somebody out in the lobby afterwards that you trust. Don't go up to some random person and be like, what is circumcision? Okay. But if you understand what it is, uh, it's kind of impossible to reverse. And if you want to try, good luck. I don't know. I mean, maybe this is too graphic, but I don't know how you're going to track that thing down. So Paul, Paul's like, hey, this is a silly conversation. As silly as a Jewish man being circumcised and going, I'm a believer in Jesus now. I need to reverse my circumcision. 
Okay, Acts 21, this goes even further. Paul, uh, there are some Jews who are hearing of a way Paul is teaching. Now, it's not true, but it's something they're hearing, and it really goes to a fear that was among the Jewish people at the time that the Gentiles would start trying to make them live as a Gentile, not as a Jew, if they were going to believe in Jesus. Acts 21, starting in verse 20. And then they said, this Jewish group said, You know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you, Paul, are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. In other words, to stop being Jewish and start acting like Gentiles. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow their Jewish customs. Now, I don't have the time to go further with this, but Paul's response is, hey, this is crazy. There there are a few among us who are finishing up their vow. We're going to publicly send them into the temple. They're going to shave their heads as is according to custom. And and everyone's going to know we're not teaching anyone to any Jewish person to turn their back on their Jewishness, on the Mosaic law. Okay. So he answers that. He puts it to bed. Now, I want to read you Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, because this is a verse that I think the church is guilty of misusing as it relates to our Jewish brothers and sisters. Our Jewish brothers and sisters who are believers in Jesus. The church is guilty of misusing this verse to to try and diminish their Jewishness or have them to change or alter or minimize their Jewishness, their Jewish heritage, customs, identity. Galatians 3 verse 28 Paul says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. I don't know how many times I've heard this from friends who, when I talk about God's heart for Israel, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. Like, I don't even know why you're talking about this. Okay, let me keep going. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, I love how God gives this to us via Paul. Think about this. When a woman comes to the altar and gives her life to Jesus, and once the prayer is done, and let's say I'm the one praying with them, she starts to walk towards the door. Do I say to her, whoa, 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 before you go, uh, now as a follower of Jesus Christ, I need you to renounce your femininity your womanness. You need to become a man. Does anyone, I know some of you think I'm I'm crazy, but does anyone think that I would ever say that? Okay, I would not. Let me let you in on the secret. No, I would not. Okay, in the same way, it's just as wrong to look at a Jewish man or woman and say, you believe in Jesus now? You need to renounce your Jewishness. Let me drive this home even more clearly because unfortunately I think this is most clear when it's black and white. My best friend on planet earth, Tim Ross, just so happens to be an African-American man. And let's say he weren't saved and I led him to Christ. And after leading him to Christ as a white male, I say to him, hey, uh, since I led you to Christ, as a white man, 
there's one more thing I'm gonna need you to do if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus Christ. I need you to become white. That's how he would probably respond. Okay, are you catching this? I get that we're all kind of laughing, but here's the problem. The church is so unbelievably guilty of looking towards the Jewish people who long to believe in Yeshua and saying, you can't believe in Yeshua unless you behave like us. That is the equivalent of looking at my African-American best friend and saying, you need to be white just because I am. The goal of humanity is to be one in Jesus, not one of a kind. This is the essence of Galatians 3 verse 28. This conversation between Jews and Gentiles in the first century church got so individually specific. It was all about individual identity. God's trying to bring everybody back and go, hey, this, here's the most important identity, your identity in Christ Jesus, in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. It's not that we lose our individual identity. It's that his identity is the most important, and it's actually the tie that binds us all together as Jews and Gentiles. Here's question number two. Why does the relationship between the church and Israel matter? Important question, two answers. First answer, because it's God's heart. The relationship between the Gentile church, let me just say that a little more specifically, and the Jewish people is it's God's heart. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It's a little bit strong, but we'll talk it through. In my opinion, it's extremely difficult to understand God's heart without an understanding for God's heart for Israel. I know that's a strong statement, but let me help you understand why I believe that. Because the story of God and Israel is a divine love story. See, some of you are thinking, why in the world, Preston, are we talking about this? And you're about to see the romantic why. But you first have to understand that God's heart is for Israel. Let me just show you a couple of passages. I can read you a ton of them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people, speaking of the Israelites, who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Okay, now, I, I personally believe that one of the reasons why anti-Semitism, of course it's demonic and it, it's the enemy's ploy to try and subvert God's plan on the earth, okay? But one of the reasons why I think it's been so easy for anti-Semitism to take hold, especially and I know that's a strong word, even or especially in the church. It's because we read passages that make it sound like that the Jewish people are more special than the rest of the people. And so just think about it from a sibling perspective. If your parents acted like you were more important than your siblings, do you think your siblings would resent it a little bit? Sure, I'm sure that's how my brothers felt because I was the most important. <laughs> Just kidding. But as a dad, let me try and help you understand this, okay? Because uh, uh, you go read Acts 10. P 
Peter has this incredible epiphany, this, re- this revelation from the Lord, and his big takeaway that he communicates is, hey, I've learned God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't mean we lose our individual identity. But God isn't saying that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are more special than you. Here's how I would describe it. I have three kids. All three of my children are special to me, but for different reasons. And one of the reasons they're uniquely special to me is because they each have unique purposes that God has given them. Israel, yes, the the Jewish people absolutely have a very unique and special purpose. But so do I and we as Gentile believers. Okay, so let me, Zechariah 2, verse 8 is another one that I love. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you, speaking of Israel, he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. They are a treasured possession, a special people. Not more special than me, because we're one in Christ Jesus, but they are uniquely different than me and uniquely special to God. So am I. But listen, one of the reasons anti-Semitism has been able to take hold is because of this thought that, oh, God, God sees the Jewish people as better than everybody else. Listen, yes, they are a treasured possession, uniquely special. But so are you. Now, as we talk about Israel being the apple of God's eye, there's something I need to cover, make sure we cover. It's a theological term, and it, it, the, the serious term is supersessionism. The more loose term is replacement theology. This is a teaching in the church that says that the church has replaced Israel. Okay? So I want you to kind of understand God's heart, and not just for the Jewish people, but God's heart. I want you to think about this. The word supersede means to cause to be set aside, to force out of use as inferior. Okay, just the thought of this word makes me sick to my stomach. It's so elitist. I want you to think about this. Is that really how God talks? Think about this. Is that really how God talks? That God would look at a group of people and say, I chose you to be a special treasure, but you know what? You have rejected me time and time again. So you know what? You're out. You're out. I'm bringing somebody else in to replace you. Okay. Is that how God talks? This is huge, whether you understand this or not. Understanding that replacement theology is not only not biblical, it's demonic. And I'll show you the why. But listen, Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, addresses this. Before replacement theology is even a thing, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people? The nation of Israel? Of course not. Paul nips this in the bud. One of my friends said, if only Rome would have listened. (laughs) It's the truth. So much pain and turmoil could have been stopped. 
God rejected his own people? Absolutely not. Of course not. He's demonstrative. Okay, here's why this is important. If God can change his heart for Israel because of what they did in rejecting him, God can change his heart for any of us because of anything we do. That's not a theological slippery slope. That's a theological death sentence. Just, just think about this. Let's just kind of move to the side for a moment, the nation of Israel. And let's just, let's just talk about this idea of God's ability to replace or his, his possible desire to replace. Would you, based on the bad you've done, want God to wake you up one morning and go, you know what? I chose you from the beginning, but you turned your back on me so many times. I'm done with this. I'm done with you. I'm going to put somebody else in the position I originally created for you. You're out. Anybody want to wake up in the morning and hear that conversation from the God of the universe? Okay. I don't reject replacement theology because I don't want to hear that conversation. I reject that because scripture says that's not how God talks. This is one of the reasons why understanding God's heart for Israel is so important. And that leads us to the second answer to why is the relationship between the church and Israel so important? It's his plan. Because it's his plan. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. The birth of a nation. Verse 2. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you, God says to Abraham. Okay, I, I want to address if one side of the dangerous theological spectrum is replacement theology, I wanna cover the other side. It's called dual covenant theology. And dual covenant theology says this, that there are two, in essence, two paths to God. There's a path for the Gentiles through Jesus, but the Jewish people, because of everything they've been through and because they're God's chosen people, they, in essence, all go to heaven. They all get in because they're God's people. Okay, I need you to understand why this is important to understand that is not scriptural. Because if you believe dual covenant theology, you will actually not be walking out scripture. Think about this. If dual covenant theology is true, then Romans chapter one, verse 16 is heresy. And Jesus is an absolute liar in John 14, verse six. Think about it. Romans 1, 16, the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Okay. Why would the gospel need to go to the Jew first if every Jew was going to heaven because they were God's chosen people? That doesn't even make sense. Second, and even more importantly, when Jesus in John 14 says, no man can come to the Father except through me. Either Jesus is a liar or dual covenant theology is. Listen, scripture makes it clear how many ways are there to the Father? One. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. Yeshua Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, 
Romans chapter 11, if you have your Bible, go over to Romans 11, wherever you are. And we're going to read two really important verses. And then I'm going to try and illustrate the bulk of Romans 11 conversational style. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But God wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. So Romans 11 is a very important chapter in the Bible. And oftentimes, chapters 9, 10, 11 get omitted from a lot of teaching in the church. Everybody hammers the first eight and kind of pushes 9, 10, and 11 to the side. 11 is a very important chapter in the Bible. If you want some homework, go and read it. Read it a couple times this week. Verse 12. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. Paul is helping us understand God's plan to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, I want to try and illustrate this. I know this is not how it happened. I'm not suggesting that it did. I wasn't around. But to try and make it as easy to understand as possible, I want to illustrate Romans chapter 11, kind of sum it up as though it were a conversation between God and us, because that's what scripture is. But I'll personalize it and make it about me. It's as though God comes to me and says, Preston, I want you to understand something. My heart is that all of humanity would be saved. I will that none should perish. And I want the whole earth to see my love, experience my love, and know my love. And I've come up with a way to show my love to the world. Preston, I've chosen a very small group of people. Preston, here's how small this group of people really is. When I chose them, they were one. And here's why I did this. Because for many, many hundreds and hundreds of years, Many a human is going to look in my direction as they get a greater revelation of just how great I am. And one of the big things they're going to say is how could a God that great care at all for someone so small like me? Incidentally, even now, it's believed that there are about 14 million Jews on the earth out of 7.8 or 9, 8 billion people. That's less than 0.2% of the world's population. Even to this day, very small group of people. Preston, I've chosen this group of people to display my love and my glory. But they're going to turn their back on me. They're going to reject me so many times. But I want the world to know how I love and I'm going to record it in my word all of the various ways they've spit in my face and rejected me for so many years not to make them look bad because Preston on the inside you're just as bad that's the very reason why 
I want everyone to read the love story between me and Israel so that you will see how my love works. Preston, when they reject me, I'm going to use people like you, Gentile men and women who fall in love with me. I'm gonna use you to get their attention so they will come back to me. Because Preston, they're gonna look at you as a non-Jewish man, as a Gentile man, and they're gonna say, you don't have the patriarchs. In other words, you're not biological, biologically related to Father Abraham. You weren't entrusted the oracles of God, scripture. You don't follow Mosaic law. Preston, they're gonna look at you and you're gonna give them every reason why I shouldn't love you. And they're going to watch how I love you if you'll let them. And it's going to make them jealous in a good way so that they reclaim what is theirs. They come back to me. Preston, this is my plan, that the whole world would see my love. And son, here's what you need to understand. The key to revival sweeping over the earth is that my gospel goes to the Jew first. That their eyes would be opened. Preston. And, and Paul goes on to say, hey, what, what, I just read it in verse 12. What will happen when the Jewish people's eyes are open to Yeshua being their Messiah? It will only lead to life from the dead. Preston, this is my plan. You know what's awesome is after the, the first service, uh, I ran into a man that uh, my guess is probably battling a bit, a, a bit of addiction. I'll just say it that way. Very sweet, younger guy, but you can tell, wrestling some things. And my first thought, when he walked up to me, I was like, Lord, I, this probably felt like drinking through a fire hydrant. He hasn't been in church in a long time, and what a horrible message for him to hear. <laughs> and I just sensed the Holy Spirit say, that's, that's exactly the wrong thing to say to me right now, Preston. Because what I just communicated to him was that no matter how many times he's rejected me, no matter how many times he has done what he knows he's done, I still love him. Preston, the message isn't about just the Jewish people. It's about the God of Israel who will never stop loving Israel no matter how many times they reject me and turn their back on me. Here's the third question. Why does Christology matter to me? We're going to be talking about in this series the humanity of Jesus. When we talk about the Jewishness of Jesus, we're talking about the human side, 33 years, Jesus came fully God and fully man, but not everyone believes that. When we talk about theology, which means the doctrine of God, when we talk about theology, we always start with the doctrine of God. Then secondarily, we move to Christology, the doctrine of Christ. If you're taking notes and you've never heard that word before, write this down. Christology is the doctrine of Christ which deals with the person and work of Jesus. It's very simple. Now, I want to give you two ends of the spectrum when we talk about um, 
the hypostatic union. I know that's a big word, but hypostatic union is the theological term for the combination of both the divine and human nature of Jesus, okay? Now, the two ends of the spectrum, one is Ebionism, all right? I know this is a lot to throw at you, but this is, we gotta build the proper foundation to really go further in this series. Ebionism majors on the humanity of Jesus, okay? So what Ebionism teaches is Jesus was a man, but not God, okay? On the other end of the spectrum is Docetism, Docetism teaches the opposite, that Jesus was, was simply God disguised as a man. Okay, now, we know according to Scripture, neither are true. Let me show it to you. John chapter 1, verse 14, one of the sweetest and most romantic verses in the Bible, in my opinion. The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. One translation says, and tabernacled among us. Another translation says, and moved into our neighborhood. The word became flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7 illustrate this or, or teach this even deeper. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, Jesus gave up his divine privileges. Notice it says divine privileges, not divinity. I've actually heard it taught, Jesus gave up his divinity temporarily. That's not true. Jesus gave up his divine privileges, okay? And then it goes further, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, here's what you need to understand. Why it's so important as we talk about not just the divinity of Jesus, but also the humanity. I'll give you the romantic why at the end. But here's the theological importance of really having a balanced perspective of Jesus being fully God and fully man, not one or the other. Here's the important theological why. Jesus had to, to come as a man so that he could die. An eternal God cannot die. Jesus had to come as a man so that he could die. But he needed to be God so that his death could apply to all, not just one. Here's another way to say it. The God-man, which is one of my favorite terms for Jesus, the God-man, speaking of being fully God, fully man, Jesus came to show man what man was missing. God. Jesus revealed as a man the answer to all of the heart's complex problems, God. Now, I want to try and finish this illustrating it personally to try and really make it simple to understand because I, I, I'm so grateful that you've tracked with me this whole time. This week, uh, Holly and I are going to be celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. Yeah, you should give her a hand. Give, given her plenty of reasons to, to quit on me, but thank God she is still, but God and but Holly, they're still, she is still in this thing. Um, but I, I've been, uh, as cheesy as this sounds, I don't know why, and I told her this this week, I've been dreaming of our 20th anniversary since uh, the day we got engaged. 
And I don't know why. It just always felt like it was going to be this significant moment in my life. And so we are, in a couple of days, we're going to be reaching that milestone. And as I've just been reflecting over the last 20 years of being married to her with the Lord, he's just kind of been taking me down memory lane. And as he did, it's so wild how much overlap there is with what we're talking about today and why understanding the Jewishness of Jesus is so sweetly romantic, not just theologically essential. He said, Preston, do you remember before you proposed to Holly what you did? And I said, yeah. Uh, She grew up in California. I grew up in Texas. And if you know anything about Texans, we're not Californians. Some of you may have just moved here from California because I know there are more California license plates in our parking lot every weekend. I don't mean to offend you, but I kind of (laughs) do. The song doesn't say God bless California with his own hand. It says God bless Texas with his own hand. But that's... I'm just playing with you. Um, He said, do you remember what you did? I said, yeah. I flew to California. And I went to the church where she grew up in. And I went to her family's favorite deli spot. And I went to the home where she was born. And I walked the streets of her childhood. And he goes, why did you do that? I said, well, I mean, I'm obsessed with her. And when I met her, I knew there was a lot that happened before me. And I wanted to learn as much about it as I could before she became a part of me. I said, yeah. Do you understand that every time you get into my word and you learn about my son, Jesus, You don't just read what he did, but you study why he did it, why he read what he read in the temple that day when he separated from his parents. Preston, the reason you went and studied Holly in California is because you made a promise to her that by the time you die, you would know more about her than any human who ever walked the face of the earth. Every time you study my son like this, Preston, you're sending the same message to me. See, too many believers serve the Jesus they want him to be rather than the Jesus he actually is. And understanding how he walked the earth those 30 years, why he did some of what he did, is so sweetly important to us. Here's the point. When you love someone, you love what they love, and you love whom they love. The reason that as a church, We are so serious about being a blessing 
to the Jewish people is not because God said in Genesis 12, press and I'll bless your church if you bless these people. The reason we are so serious about God's heart for Israel and teaching Jesus for who he really is, not some westernized version of him, it's because we love him. And when you love, you want to learn everything you can about the one you love. So here's what I'd ask for the next six weeks of your life. That you'd set aside what you think you know. That you would let love take over. And you would seek to learn about the love of your life. Learn things about Jesus, big or small, that maybe you've never known about him before. Are we trying to become Jewish? No. I'm just trying to learn about the one I love. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.